Thank you for listening in to this week's sermon from Restoration Church Bryan. To learn more about Restoration, you can find us online at restorationbryan.com. We are so grateful for all those who are able to listen online, and we pray the message encourages you and challenges you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you are not already connected to a local church, we would love to invite you to join us for worship. If you are listening from another city, we pray that this message is a great supplement to your walk with Christ, and our hope is that you would have a gospel-centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. If you got your Bibles, Acts chapter 7, we are going to pick, uh, pick it up in verse 44 as, as uh, Pastor Matt just read. We'll get there in just a moment. There was a, there was a story told uh, of a captain of a ship who, who looked into, a dark, uh, into the dark night and, and saw faint lights in the distance. And, and some of you may have heard this story, but he, he, he told his signal, signalman to send a message. Uh, and, and the message just was this, alter your course 10 degrees south. Promptly a return message was received, alter your course 10 degrees north. And the captain of the ship uh, obviously was angered that his command had been ignored. Uh, so he sent a second, uh, second message that says, alter your course 10 degrees south. Uh, I am a captain. Uh, and so he, soon another message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. Uh, I am uh, Seaman Third Class Jones. <laughs> uh, immediately, the captain sent a, a third message, knowing the fear that it would invoke. He said, Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. Immediately, he got the reply Alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm a lighthouse. Church family, I can't tell you how many times, like, like my way Moses, I've, I've had my course set or, or just uh, was kind of rolling along and the Lord had to remind me that He is the lighthouse and I am the ship. Amen? And even in the midst of the fog, even in the midst of the noise, even at times when I thought, like, okay, I got this. I, I'm seeing this clearly. God, God has had to remind me over and over again that his perspective is the only perspective that matters. Amen? And as we, as we dive into to the, the final part of Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, we're going to see that God's perspective was the only perspective that mattered that day. Y'all, this has never been more important than right now. Culturally, like look around at what's going on. Church, we need a tremendous amount of discernment. Amen? Things are not always what they seem to be, and we see this on, on the day of Stephen's death. So I'm going to kind of bring a question to bear that I feel like we've been asking this question as we've been rolling through Acts, but um, what about you? Are you seeking out God's perspective on, on cultural 
events, on, on turmoil, maybe in your own circumstances and in your own trials and in your own like decisions that, that, that are, are pressing in on you, are you actively pursuing God's point of view? Are you, are you filtering things through a, a gospel perspective? There's a, there's a lot of talk, there has been for the last several years, but right now there's a lot of talk about fake news. Um, church, we, like, we have the good news, amen? We have the good news, and, and truthfully, whatever our minds, as we look around, whatever our minds are, are blindly consuming without taking into account a gospel perspective, that's fake news. Like Jesus, Stephen combated the, the lies of the enemy with the truth of the Word of God. And, and, and we've, we've talked about this as we close out Acts 7. What's not in doubt is Stephen's handle of Scripture. But in addition, in this passage, we're going to see again, this. we saw it in Acts 6, we're going to see this emphasis on, on Stephen being filled and directed and led by the Spirit of God. And so that combo, the Word and the Spirit, enabled Stephen to be driven by God's perspective even when others couldn't see. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians that says this, 2.12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Amen? And so, as we, as we jump into our text, we're going to see that from God's perspective, there, there, was, there was some different things going on. You guys, y'all can bring me down. I feel like I'm like... First thing this morning, from God's perspective, as we look at, as you look at verse 44 through 50, from God's perspective, Jesus was the house of God. Jesus was the house of God. I, I want you to look at your neighbor and say, house of God. Look at your other neighbor and say, the house of God. <laughs> we got to work on this unison thing. Verse 44 says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. This this was the, it's a reference to the tabernacle. See, long before Solomon constructed the temple of God in 1 Kings 6, God constructed, God directed Moses to construct the tabernacle, right? The, the tent of witness with, the text tells us, specific designs, right? According to a, a pattern. So even though the, the, the temple and its predecessor, the tabernacle, were, were sort of the, they were the final sacred cows of Judaism, it's important to remember that they were God's idea. Y'all with me? Like these, this was God's idea. But just like the law, we talked about this last week, uh, Israel had completely missed their purpose, 
And the tabernacle and the temple were, were necessary and served a, a valuable purpose for their time. But man, they were only a shadow. They were just a shadow of what was to come. And so as we get into the text, as you look at verse 45, from Joshua's day uh, to David's day, all the way up until the time of Solomon, the tabernacle was the place, uh, this, this sort of mobile tabernacle was the place of worship and sacrifice for God's people, sacrifice for sin. The tabernacle housed the, the Ark of the Covenant. And for those of you who don't remember Old Testament history, the Ark of the Covenant housed the tablets of the law that were directly handed to Moses by God. The, the, the Ark of the Covenant also had uh, Aaron's, uh, his staff that had budded. Uh, it also had, at this point, some really moldy manna. I'm like, I don't know why you keep manna in a box. Um, but they did. It was a reminder of God's provision. But even... So as you look at verse 46, even, see, David, David got it twisted. And, and, and he's, he's sitting around his palace, um, and, and he has this idea, man, I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm living in, in luxury in my cedar-planked pad, and, and, and we've got, uh, David's thinking, we've got God over here dwelling in this tent. You know, I'm going to do God a solid, uh, and, and I'm going to build something really nice for him. That's, that's the JSV. That's the Jonathan Standard Version. That's what David said, okay? But God intervenes, and uh, 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 like essentially, God says, oh, you're going to, like, you're going to, Build me a house. That's, that's cute, David. <laughs> and then God proceeds to remind him that he took him from the pasture. He took him from hanging out with the sheep. And he installed him as king over Israel. And he, and he flips the script and he says, David, you think you're going to build me a house? No, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty, a kingdom of kings. And my steadfast love is Will, will never leave the house of David. And then in verse 47, you see Solomon eventually did, Solomon did build a temple. But we see this in 1 Kings 8, 27. Even St Solomon knew what, what Stephen makes abundantly clear in verses 48 through 50, that God does not dwell in our structures. It's something that we've been talking about the last few weeks. Look at verse 48 through 50. Actually, 49. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Is, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? See, God does not dwell in our structures, not in a tent, not in a not in a temple, not in brick and mortar, not in, our, not in our concrete arenas. God's presence cannot be contained in our man-made structures. Amen? But I want us to, I want, check this out. I want us to, to, to see something, in, it's important, in light of verses 48 through 50. Think about this. In John 1.14, when it says the word became flesh, Jesus, talking about Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In the Greek, it's this idea that Jesus 
when He became flesh, He tabernacled among us. When He dwelt, He tabernacled among His people. And then Paul, in talking about Jesus in Colossians 1, familiar passage, but connect the dots here. Colossians 1, 15-17. He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1, 16. This is important. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Think about verse 49. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Go back to Acts 7.50. Did not my hand make all these things? And then ultimately, the author of Hebrews would help us connect the dots completely when he says this in Hebrews 8. One and two. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Then in Hebrews 9, 11 and 12, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then Hebrews 9.24, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Amen? Jesus is the house of God. When I was a teenager, back in the day, we would roll into youth group or like when we would go to youth camp. I mean, this is like early, mid-90s. We would roll into youth camp uh, with, with 700 like rowdy Christian uh, kids at Alto Frio Baptist Encampment. And we would sing this just... <laughs> Pretty awful, cheesy 90, 90s song by Audio Adrenaline called My Father's House. Y'all heard, who's, who's heard My Father's House, right? Come and go with me to my father's house. See, y'all know it. Y'all know it. And like, it's like, you know, it's a big, big house. Lots and lots of room. A big, big table with lots and lots of food. A big, big yard where we can play football. Okay, that's enough. Hey. <laughs> So, and here's the idea. We rock out in all of that 90s cheesiness. And, and, and I guess the goal was to like get hype, like about worshiping in God's house, right? Church family, we got to connect the dots. Jesus was the house of God. Now that song's going to be stuck in your head all day. See, the, that day, the Israelites, man, they were so bent out of sh shape about the, the temple, a physical structure. They were bent out of shape about the temple and it, to the point that they're going to murder a guy. And they're completely missing God's perspective. See, when Christ came, what, what they were seeing was the fulfillment of God's purpose for the temple. Are you all with me? 
They're seeing the fulfillment of God's purpose. Jesus was God. He was the embodiment of the glory of God, the embodiment of, of grace and truth wrapped in human flesh. But they, they crucified him because just like in the days of Moses, they would rather have their idols than the presence of God. They'd rather have their idols in the actual presence of God. And here's, here's, here's a little application. We, y'all, we do the same thing today. Right? We, we play so much significant. We, we roll into our concerts, our worship venues. We, we roll into our Christian conferences, into our houses of worship. But how many flocking to the physical structures are actually pursuing the glory of God in Jesus? And church, our spaces today have got to serve the same purpose that the tabernacle and the temple served then. If they are not pointing us to Jesus, they are, we're completely missing the point. Amen? Second thing this morning. As we look at verses 51 through 56, from God's uh, perspective, the religious leaders were the lawbreakers. From God's perspective, the religious leaders were the lawbreakers. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, lawbreaker. <laughs> Don't, you're not calling them a lawbreaker, although they are. You are too. Look at your other neighbor. Say, lawbreaker. <laughs> Church fam, when I was like two months old, uh, Judas Priest came out with his hit song, Breaking the Law. <laughs> and in the video, you see, uh, you see priests uh, cruising down the streets of London in his, uh, it's like a 74 uh, Cadillac uh, Eldorado, Fleetwood El- Eldorado. You see him cruising before he like crashes the bank with a couple of his buddies. And they, with guitars in hand, they go, they go crash into the bank. They break into the vault. They don't steal money. They steal the Golden Record Award, which was kind of presumptuous, but... Um, and the whole time, they are defiantly singing, breaking the law, <laughs> breaking the law. In Stephen's case, the law-breaking was far less subtle than that, okay? In verse 51, we, we see Stephen, see, verse 51, is, is a, there's a shift in, in the sermon. He moves from recounting Old Testament history to confronting his accusers head on. And he actually, he actually goes on the offensive and he has some pretty strong words for the, the, the Israelites accusing him of blasphemy. The first thing he, he says is he, he says, you are stiff-necked people. You are stiff-necked people. Uh, it's, it's alluded to uh, as a, an Old Testament reference, but it was like a, an ox or a beast of burden who, who was so stubborn and obstinate it wouldn't listen to its master. And then he, he, he says you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. And, and, and so uh, if you remember Old Testament history, the, the, the God's covenant with Abraham, circumcision was the sign of God's covenant of being in right relationship with God. So uncircumcised hearts and ears meant nothing short of not loving or listening to the God with whom they were supposed to be in covenant. In the mere mention of being likened to an uncircumcised Gentile, y'all, it would have elicited uh, the, the response that it did from this self-righteous mob. 
But Stephen goes out of the way to make this point that they're resisting the Spirit of God. They were resisting. Man, we do it today. We resist the Spirit of God. He says, just like their fathers who had persecuted and murdered God's prophets and messengers. In verse 52, they had persecuted and murdered the embodiment of righteousness, Jesus And this made them the ultimate lawbreakers. Not Stephen. Not the guy who who was about to lose his life. But this made them the ultimate lawbreakers. And all along, see these religious leaders and all their self-righteous indignation. All along, they thought that they had Stephen on the hot seat. They thought that they were standing over him to judge him, but Stephen turns the tables and says, no, see, in rejecting Christ, you rejected the fulfillment of righteousness. The fulfillment of the law. And now Jesus stands as judge over you. And in verse 55 and 56, check this out. This is... Stephen says something important. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. See, he says something interesting. Multiple times in Scripture, we see this picture of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. Jesus sits because his work of salvation is finished. Amen? He's like, I'm done. <laughs> the work of salvation is, is finished, so, so he's, he's seated. There is one mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5, between God and man. It's Jesus. F.F. F. Bruce says, the presence of the Son of Man, which was, is a reference back to Daniel 7.13 and 14. But the presence of the Son of Man at God's right hand meant for His people a way of access to God had been opened up more immediate and heart-satisfying than the temple ritual could ever provide. So what does it mean that Stephen sees this, this vision of Christ standing at the right hand of the Father in heaven? Some believe that Jesus is standing to welcome Him into heaven. Others believe that Jesus is standing in solidarity as a, as, as a, uh, uh, to, uh, a witness in Stephen's defense. There, there are lots of good explanations for why Jesus might be standing, uh, for the explanation, explanation for what Stephen sees. But understand this, the picture of the New Testament is Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. When Christ stands again, it, it is for one reason in one reason only. When Christ stands, it is when Christ will return. When Christ returns for His bride, His church. When Christ returns to make all things right and all things new. To judge the world and to rule and to reign as King. So I, I, I believe that though Stephen was being judged as the lawbreaker and the blasphemer, God gave him a clear vision of Judge Jesus who would not only come to one day vindicate him, but to one day stand in judgment over his accusers, the real lawbreakers. See, Stephen, here's the thing, y'all. Stephen saw God's perspective. Stephen saw God's perspective in a simple application. Listen, 
simple application for the church today. Can we, can we just confess, like we're, like, we're all the lawbreakers. Amen? We're all the lawbreakers. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we don't call one another out on our junk. Amen? Some people will point to Matthew 7. 1 through 5, they'll point to Luke 6, 37 and, and mistakenly say, oh, no, 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 like we're, no, 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 like in the church, we're not called, we're not called to, to judge one another. If that's where we land, listen, that's not what those passages are saying. If that's where we land, we, we miss the point. The point is that Jesus is the source of righteousness. The point is that Jesus is the measuring rod. The point is that Jesus is the standard. So in the church, all of us are supposed to hold our lives up to the standard of Jesus and help one another do the same while remembering you're not the standard. Neither am I. Jesus is. Third thing this morning, from God's perspective, and this, this if you were there that day, this, is, this would have been the, the hardest one, I think, to, to grasp. From God's perspective, Stephen was the only one who was alive. From God's perspective, Stephen was the only one who was alive. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, he was alive. Look at your other neighbor and say, he was alive. See, we've already seen the in verse 54, I, I kind of glossed over it a minute ago, but in verse 54, we already see these guys. They were so, these religious leaders were so filled with rage. The text tells us they were literally grinding their teeth. They're grinding their teeth. They're so upset and mad. Then in verse 57, you can't help see, but see the irony that those just accused of having uncircumcised ears, like unable to hear the voice of God, what do they do? Like little children, like my two-year-old, almost three, Plug up the ears, and in unison, they storm and bum-rush Stephen to kill him. And while the, while the Israelite leaders are consumed in their anger toward him, and, and they, they just want to silence him and, and kill him, Stephen <coughs> is consumed with the vision of heaven. He's consumed with the vision of heaven, and even his large rocks bludgeon his body. Y'all, he uses his final breath. He uses his final breath to cry out, to ask God for mercy for those who are taking his life. Wow. What is, what is this revealing? It, it's revealing that life is found in the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Life is found in the grace of God, but not just, we, we talk about this often, not just grace is a commodity that you get to consume, but grace is the character of God that we're called to display to others. And the grace of God so filled Stephen that it overflowed in a declaration of mercy and forgiveness towards his enemies. That's life. That's life. That's something you won't find in this world. That's a, that kind of power could only come from God. And it, in that day, let me tell you something. It was the angry mob who was still dead in their sins. 
And controlled by their bitterness and their anger and their vitriol, they, they gave free reign to their murderous intentions. While they resisted the Spirit, Stephen was filled with the Spirit of God even in death, even in his physical death. See, as you read John 3, uh, 3 through 7, you don't have to go there, but just make a note. As you read John 3, 3 through 7, and Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, Jesus, Jesus is clear. Like, you cannot be born again. You cannot be regenerated. What, what, that, what that means is, listen, our, our dead sinful hearts cannot become alive to the things of God. Our affections for God can't grow and change. Uh, we can't think rightly about God and the gospel unless the Spirit of God gets involved. Jesus says in John 6.63, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Church, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. And it made him alive. It made him alive with this burning passion and mission. This, it made him alive with this burden for others. It made him alive with, with the Spirit of Christ. And check this out. It made him alive. Ready? with the compassion of Christ. Stephen was set apart by his grace toward the undeserving. And a, listen, a primary evidence of the Christian life and character has always been the ability to freely give the same forgiveness and grace that you have received from God. Say that again. A primary evidence of the Christian life and of Christian character is the ability to freely give the same grace and forgiveness that you have received from God. And church fam, you want to know, we see this throughout Acts, even as Paul shares his testimony. You want to know who never got over the grace shown by Stephen to his executioners? You want, you want to know who never got over that grace? Saul. Saul. Saul who would become Paul, who that day clearly was some sort of ringleader in all of this because they, they laid their coats at Saul's feet. Y'all think about that, man. Like they were throwing rocks so hard that, that they determined, they deemed it necessary. Like, like, let me take my jacket off while I murder this guy. And Saul was sitting there overseeing it and watching it, watching people's coats as a man was murdered. You know what? He never got over it. When God saved him, he never got over it. It was Augustine who said that the church would not have had Paul had not Stephen prayed. Though, though Calvin tempers this judgment by saying that God could have brought uh, Paul to faith some other way, know that it was through Stephen's prayer that one at least found forgiveness in, in, in his dying Listen, Stephen was sowing a seed in the heart of his accusers and in a seed that ultimately came to full bloom in Saul's heart and life that would reap a harvest greater than anything Stephen could have ever imagined. And, and here's, here's the application. Church family, think about it. 
Think about the times that we, in which we exist right now. In, our, in these divided and, and volatile and, and angry times. Everybody's angry about everything. The only thing that will break hardened, angry hearts is the undeserved mercy of God. The only thing that's going to break hardened, angry hearts is the undeserved mercy of God. People may try to ignore the gospel of Jesus, but they cannot ignore the grace of the Christ follower right in front of them. And through it all, God is sowing seeds. He's working in people's hearts to take them from death to life. Now, I'll close, I'll close with this this morning. There was only one perspective that mattered that day. Amen? Think about it. If you were a bystander, you might have thought that the temple was still the house of God. Never mind the fact that it was only a few years later in AD 70 that the whole thing came down. You might have thought that Stephen was the lawbreaker and sinner and that the religious leaders were the the judges, right? They, they were the rightful dispensers of judgment. And you might have believed all those things. But God's perspective was the only perspective that mattered. See, from all angles, man, it, it, looks, it looked like the, the church took a, a giant L the day that Stephen died. Really did. But nothing could have been further from the truth. Stephen was the first martyr of the, of the church, the early church. And his early church father, Tertullian, once famously said, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Church John Huss was a, a 14th century reformer. John Huss believed that the scriptures were the infallible and, and authoritative word of God in all things. And because of that view, he died at the stake in Constance, Germany, when he was 42 years old. And the reformer John Huss, is, is he refused to, to uh, a, a final plea to renounce his faith. Huss's last words were this, What I taught with my lips, I seal with my blood. Church, Stephen's blood is pointing us to the blood of Jesus. Stephen's blood is pointing us to the blood of Christ Jesus, who from the cross cried out, Father, forgive them. While he was being mercilessly executed, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. And I think that we think uh, about the Romans who were present. We think about the Jews who were present. We think about all the people who were gathered that day. But listen, when he said it, he was talking to you. He was talking to me. Father, forgive them. Similar to Stephen, there would have been there would have been those who thought that the ministry of Jesus died the day that he was crucified. 
but far from it, the mission and the movement of God was alive and well as Jesus laid down his life for the sin of the world. Amen? Have you come to embrace God's perspective? And really, I, I guess the question is, have you come to embrace Jesus? Y'all pray with me this morning.